Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who takes your word and applies it to our minds and hearts and spirits and who changes us uh, from the inside out. Thank you for your love. Uh, thank you for your great work in our lives. We love you and pray that you would teach us tonight, please. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you go to this church and you didn't listen to the conclusion of Jonah, uh, get the DVD. Uh, if you don't go to this church, go to the website and get this final message of Jonah. Actually, get all the messages of Jonah, but especially today. I thought Cody did a fabulous job wrapping up uh, the book of Jonah. Really, really good. That is in the Old Testament. <laughs> so we kind of were in the Old Testament. Uh, what are we doing? Oh, yeah, Romans 7. Do we have anything to talk about tonight? Anything I need to mention? Okay, good, 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 good. Okay, so we've been talking about Joshua. So if you look at the Hexateuch, remember the Pentateuch's first five books, Hexateuch is first six. So you add Joshua in there, and there's this amazing picture that God has given us of redemption from Egypt, how he prepares us to follow him, how we can rebel against him, wander around in the wilderness, and he did that with the first generation. And then finally, the second generation came across the Jordan into the promised land. And there's an analog there because you and I today can cross the Jordan, which at that time, remember, because little um, rock things, one under the river and then one on the promised land side, there's an analog there to our baptism. And we go down, death, co-burial, co-resurrection on the other side with Christ. And so we started talking about how do you and I live in our inheritance our inheritance, Ephesians 1.3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is ours in Christ Jesus. Every. If you say, I, gosh, I don't know what inheritance I got from the Lord. Oh, how about every spiritual blessing? <laughs> Let's start there. Ephesians 2.10, good works that he created ahead of time for us that we may walk in them. So there's some more of my inheritance Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. There's some more inheritance that I've received from him. Not to mention the biggest and bestest thing I've inherited, and that's just to know Christ and to be in relationship with him. What a great inheritance. We don't talk very much about possessing our inheritance as Christians. So this is Romans 5, 6, 7, 8. is talking about how do we possess those inheritances or that big inheritance that Christ has won for us and given to us to share. And you even saw that in Romans 7, right? Or no, I guess it's in Romans 8. Well, you're going to get there next week. In fact, together with Christ, chapter 8, verse 17. I know we're not there tonight, but I'm going to read it anyway. Chapter 8... Right, chapter 8, after 1 Peter, 2 Peter last week. i got to make sure I'm in the right book and the right chapter. Chapter 8, verse 17, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. We're heirs. You are joint heirs with Christ. You didn't decide that, he did. He made you an heir. So we're going to continue to talk about how do we possess what I've called our promised land. Okay. Living in the promised land, which is in quotes, 
Those who've crossed the river have settled the answers to three questions and then live in light of those answers. First, how does God see me? I mean, really. He sees you as justified, at peace with him, grace now and glory to come. Chapter 5, we settled the issue of bookkeeping, right? Which you don't, but I continue to fall back into, bookkeeping. But he sees me now really as justified. There's no more. He's not angry with me anymore. He's not punishing me anymore. What more could he do than what he's done to Christ? Nothing. So he's only loving and gracious and good toward me. He sees me as justified, at peace with him, grace now, glory to come. That's how he sees me right now. How do I overcome deliberate sin? Remember, twice in chapter 6, and I reminded you that, um, depending on your translation, they've made a, a nice sanitized version of what Paul said, but I coached you of what he really said, but I'm not allowed to say it, but uh, we could go with the NLT. Of course not. <laughs> so weak. Not only no, but... Mm. No. Okay. The issue, how do I overcome deliberate sin? And we saw twice in chapter 6 where ongoing sin is no longer admissible in the Christian's life. But so many Christians, me too, from time to time, I just think, you know, I don't know what to do. I guess you just walk this road and you die and you go to heaven and then it's all solved. I don't know what to do in between. I got saved. Nothing I do seems to make any difference, so I guess I just put one foot in front of the other, and one day, yahoo, I'm done. No, Paul says ongoing sin is inadmissible in a Christian's life. Well, trouble? And he then gives us help for that. Remember, he said, know, so remember chapter 5, know who you are, consider or reckon, remember we talked about that accounting term, Reckon it to be so. Count on it to be so. More than what you think, more than what you feel, more than what your past experiences have told you about this. Take your stand on the word of God. Know, consider, or reckon. And then yield. What do you need to yield? There's the faith. You're turning a one-time faith event, right? Your salvation, into a daily habit. Walking by faith. Living by faith. That's what we're doing. That's what these chapters are teaching us. So how does God see me? Really justified. How do I overcome deliberate sin? Know, reckon, and yield. So he's begun to give us some help for how do we overcome deliberate sin. Chapter 7. So if I stop the downhill slide, what hasn't Paul talked about yet? How do, I start climbing the, how do I start climbing to holiness? If I stop this, here I go down, I can get a hold of this, but I, I haven't started coming up yet. So in chapter 7 and chapter 8, he's going to talk about how do I start progressing in holiness. You want this, and so do I. God has seen fit through Paul to tell us what this means. Here's the old bill and the new bill. Okay, so this is... 
The old bill owned by Satan. Eek. The new bill owned by God. Praise God. My old ruler, sin. My new ruler is grace, the principle of grace, Jesus Christ being the epitome of that. Me, my identity, I am in Adam. The new bill, me, I am in Christ. I'm part of a new family. I'm on the other side of the wall. What was the power going on in the old bill? Sin exercised its authority and power over me as Adam's child. Now on the other side of the wall, there's a different power. I'm no longer under the authority and power of sin, but under grace and the Spirit. Life has totally changed for me. What did the old bill, living under this power, experience? Well, it led me to commit sins. And it led me to spiritual death and separation from God. What does being on the other side of the wall do? It draws me to obedience and it draws me toward Christ, righteousness, and holiness. That's what old bill and new bill. I'm on Adam's side of the fence or wall and I'm on Christ's side of the wall. Two different families, two different rulers, two different rules of life. Old Bill, New Bill. Old you, new you. And we talked about last time um, some resting and trusting. And Dick found, or he, he wrote me this. I think it was older, right? You've had this for quite a few years. And, and Laurie made a copy of it and put it on your table. It's really good. Uh, not in trying, but in trusting. Not in running, but in resting. Stop trying to fix the old man and grow the new man. Through yielding to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the will of the Father as expressed in his word. This is a good little thing to stick on your bathroom mirror. Don't put this in your car. It's too long. And you'll start looking at it while you're driving and you'll be in big trouble. So don't put this in your car, but put on your bathroom mirror because the truths that are in it are really good. It's not in trying, but in trusting. Not in running, but in resting. We move from Adam to Christ. There's two different ways of going about living. And Paul's going to continue in 7 and 8 to share with us what that new way looks like. So he's told us in Romans 5, this is how God really sees you. Here's how you stop the downhill slide. That's Romans 6. He covered the issue of license, which means, eh, I'm forgiven. What difference does it make if I sin? Right? No big deal. I'll be forgiven for it. And Paul says, meganoita. Not only no, but mm, don't do that. You can't think that way anymore. And so he covers the issue of license. I cannot live as I used to live. How do I start climbing up, moving toward holiness? First, he addresses in chapter 7 what seems to make sense for holiness, and that is legalism. Right? Don't smoke, don't drink, don't cuss, and don't go with girls who do. Oh, come on, that was worth more than that. <laughs> 
I've used it too much. I have to come up with something new. How do I pursue holiness? And so Paul is going to address in chapter 7 the issue of legalism. Watch what he's going to do. Here's how it frames up in 5, 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 5, we talked about justification. 6, 7, and 8, we're talking about sanctification. Justification is a once-for-all event, a legal declaration that moved you from one side of the wall to the other. Sanctification is progressively moving further and further away from the wall to where Jesus is. Remember that picture? The person who's not very sanctified, his, his face is pressed up against the wall. He's on the other side, but his face and whole body is pressed up against the wall. Sanctification is step-by-step step, moving away from the wall, further and further away from the wall. That's what sanctification is. Chapter 5, Paul describes how the penalty was paid. In 6, 7, and 8, he talks about how the power of sin has been broken. In chapter 5, he talks about our position. In 6, 7, and 8, he's talking about our progress. So keep this big picture in mind. Chapter 5, Christ died for us. Chapter 6, he just got done telling us we died with Christ to sin. Chapter 5, we have a new position, a new standing, and new privileges. Chapter 6, the first implication is we died to sin as a master. Sin no longer tells us, sin no longer has authority to tell us what to do. Chapter 7, he gets into something that is so key and so important, and you're going to go, I know this doesn't work, but here's the theology behind it. We have, chapter 7 is we died to our own self-effort. We died to our own self-effort. He's going to flesh this out in Romans 7. Here is the big idea. If you get nothing else from tonight, take this away. Do's and don'ts don't work. You want to pursue holiness? Do's and don'ts don't work. Now, some of you, I see some of you are like, that's true. Do's and don'ts don't work. Even baptized ones. Right? Do's and don'ts don't work. That's Paul's point of Romans chapter 7. Do's and don'ts don't work. Now, he's going to develop this through the whole chapter, but this is his bottom line. Do's and don'ts don't work. So here's the big idea. As Christians justified by faith in Christ, are we now able to obey the law to grow? Now that I become a Christian, now I can follow the law of Moses and become holy. Because I'm a Christian now. No! If I would have written it in Greek, it would be meganoita. No! Left to ourselves, our human weakness makes it impossible for even the holy and good law of Moses to rescue us from the indwelling power of sin and release us from its wages of death. Guess what, Christian? The wages of sin is death, even for you. Now, not death eternally, but why do you think Paul says some of you have fallen asleep? God has taken some away because the wages of sin is still death. 
you think, I, I'm a Christian, so I can sin. And God says, well, you're not supposed to. You know, I will forgive you because I said I would. But this is not how I set it up. And some of you won't break out of this. Remember, he talks to the Corinthians and he says, you're taking the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate way. And that's why some of you have died. God still takes sin very, very seriously. When we start thinking we have a get out of jail free card all the time, this is license. This is chapter six. Ongoing sin is inadmissible in a Christian's life. You've got to change your mind, get in step with God's mind. So Paul says, as Christians, justified by faith in Christ, are we now able to obey the law to grow? No! No! Obeying law, do's and don'ts, has never broken anyone's bondage or led to freedom and growth. Why? We aren't unwilling, but we're unable. We're not unwilling, but we're unable. That is chapter 7 of Romans. Have you ever tried that? Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're still trying it. I'm just, I'm not going to do this anymore. Until that next guy who zooms past me on I-30. And I say, I'm not going to get angry with that guy. And there he goes. What happens? Whoosh. Where am I? I'm angry. What am I tempted to do? Pull up next to him and let him know that I saw what he did. And if I ride his bumper, I'll teach him a lesson. Don't you dare cut me off. I'm so glad you learned from my poor example. (laughs) Obeying law, do's and don'ts, has never broken anyone's bondage or led to freedom and growth. Not because you're not willing. Chapter 7 at the end. But because you're unable. Do's and don'ts don't work. Chapter 7, the justified have been set free from the land and power of the law. He spends the first six verses then talking about your new relationship to the law. And he says, now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? And then he gives an example of marriage and stepping outside of marriage and after a husband dies. Says verse 4. So my dear brothers and sisters. This is the point. You died to the power of the law. When you died with Christ. How does God see you? Dead. Buried. And resurrected. And now you, you, are, now you are united with the one who is raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. 
Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. The Spirit is only mentioned one time in chapter 7. He's all over the place in chapter 8. He is the key. What is he going to address first then in chapter 7? The Spirit only shows up kind of, it's kind of this glancing blow of the Spirit. What's Paul going to talk about? Moses, the law. What am I supposed to do with the law? Keep it. Right? It's about me keeping it. So, Paul says, the believer has a new relationship to the law. The death of a spouse in a marriage leads to freedom for the survivor to remarry. Death has freed the Christian from their former marriage, in quotes, to the law, and allows them to enter into a new intimate relationship with Jesus. That's his point. You, you've gotten married because you died. There's now a different economy. I'm now entitled to receive his grace gifts rather than only wages from sin. Have you, have you read Romans 6 carefully? And 6.23, all of you know it. You can quote it. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal. And you always put it in a salvation context. Got it? How is Paul using it? He's using it in a sanctification context. What are the wages of sin? This is what sin pays you. Death. What does God give you? Gifts. Totally different economy. Here's what you earned and you got paid on the other side of the wall. On this new side of the wall. Oops, on that side of the wall. On this new side of the wall, what do you get? Gifts. You don't get wages. You get gifts. Why? Because it's all your inheritance. It's what he's given you. He gives you gifts. It's day and night. Okay. Different economy. So, Paul says, first six verses, the justified have a new relationship to the law. New relationship to it. Which then leads him into the next section. Where he says... Well, then what about God's law? And he goes through this whole thing and he says, well, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. You understand what Paul is saying? I didn't know that covetousness was wrong, and then the law says don't covet, and all of a sudden I'm awake. Ooh, <laughs> some people have got some stuff I want. <laughs> is the law good? Paul's arguing. The law is good and holy and proper and right, and everything is good about it. What does sin do with it? It takes what's good, and it makes it bad for me. Hey, Bill, law says you're not supposed to covet. Oh, I know. I haven't thought about that before. Has that ever happened to you? I know. Follow my, I mean, don't follow my bad example again. The, you read the law and it go, you say, ah, I'd never thought about that before. Now all of a sudden that's all I can think about. 
the sin takes what is good and holy and just and right and it twists it around and makes it bad and wrong for me because what does sin want to pay me? Death. That's why he says, now you can see how bad sin is. It takes everything good that God has given me and told me and it twists it around and it stabs me in the back so that it can pay me death. You think sin is this, you know, this little pussycat. It isn't. It's this giant lion. And you think you've got a hold, you've tamed this lion. And you pet it and you feed it and you and, the, you and sin have this understanding until the day it eats you. So Paul leaves this, oh my gosh, wait a minute, they might be thinking the law is bad or wrong. No, so he kind of takes this little parenthetical tour, and he says, but what about God's law? He spends a few verses, no, 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 it's good, it's righteous, it's holy, and it testifies truthfully to who God is and what he is really like. That's what the law does. But sin twists it around and makes it for my harm, and it kills me. Okay, the problem isn't the law, it's man. And so he spends the last section of this. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Ah, you should be going, I hate sin because of what it does. Everything good that God has told me and given me, sin takes it and twists it. And it deceives me into thinking it's a good thing. And yet, it's, so imagine the knife that's just stabbed you in the back. I don't want to be morbid or gross. If, if you took that knife out of my back, right, and, and now you have it, what's going to be all over that knife? Blood. Okay? It's like I walk around with this knife all covered in blood, and I go, you know, that, it wasn't that bad. I could probably do that again. I, you know, might twinge every once in a while, but I'm okay. I'm good. And God's going, <laughs> You're carrying a knife with the blood. Do you see this? This is bad. Ah, you know, it's not all that bad. I could probably handle this. This is, this is the craziness. I don't know why God, I don't know. I just don't get it. I don't get it. He's so kind and gracious. But we're carrying around this bloody knife saying, it's okay, I could do this again. I got this under control. Yeah, you, Bill, you really don't. <laughs> You're, you got a bloody knife in your hand. I know. Well, it really wasn't that bad. No, it was really bad. <laughs> mm. You know, I just don't believe you. And so I keep carrying this thing around. And I begin to convince myself it isn't really that bad. And Paul's going, ah, don't you get it? So 14, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I know that doesn't apply to you, but that definitely applies to me. 
But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does that. You wonder where the whole thing about, uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde comes from? It's right here. I don't, I don't remember which one's the good one. I guess Dr. Jekyll's the good guy. Okay? But guess what's in you and in me? Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are both in here. And Paul's talking about this struggle. Okay. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I love this. I am so thankful Paul wrote this. Aren't you? I mean, I go, oh my gosh, Paul, how does he do it? How does he live this? Because oh, I can't do that. I am so grateful for chapter 7. But I do what I don't want, but if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me. It's Mr. Hyde. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power or principle or law within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Struggle, struggle, struggle. What's he struggling with? He's struggling with the law. What does the law say? Do and don't. He wants to pursue holiness, what has he found? I can't do it. The problem isn't the law, it's man. Sin uses the law to fight believers at every turn. Sin uses the law to arouse rebellion, even in the Christian, and give birth to its fruit of spiritual death. Just as the Jew who tries and tries to obey the law remains frustrated... So Paul, and bound up under the law, so will all others be who try to use that same strategy. Paul speaking like a Jewish person. I want to obey the law. I want to obey the law. I can't. I can't. I can't. He finds this principle at work that anyone else who tries this is not going to work either. That's why Paul's like, oh my goodness, grace is so amazing. The problem isn't the law, it's man. The harder the believer tries, the worse it gets. And the worse he or she feels about himself or herself. Of himself, man is simply unable to obey God's word. Every Christian needs outside help. Every Christian needs outside help. You say, well... Really? Um, okay. So if there were a person in here who said, um, I saved myself, go ahead and raise your hand. God is fine with my payment for sin. That satisfied his holiness and justice. Go ahead and raise your hand. Did you need outside help for your salvation? Yes. 
What's his point in Romans 7? You need help for your daily life too. Your single decision of becoming a Christ follower has to translate into a habit, a lifestyle of living in faith. Because in the same way you needed outside help to be saved, you need outside help to be able to live because you are not able to do it. You're willing now, but you're not able. This is the great confusion Christians live under, in my opinion. I think that now I've become a Christian, I've got this new power that I can be victorious over sin. And I know you've heard me tell you this before. I'll probably tell it to you again about another 400 times. You think I have this power now. You, you do, in a sense, because the Spirit of God is living in you, but you don't, because it's not, he doesn't empower you by yourself to do it. The faith is the Spirit of God will bring this to pass. And in the same way you trusted him to take you from death to life, so every morning you trust him to manifest the fruit of the Spirit or to possess your inheritance, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms or to walk in the good works that he's laid out for you. Lord, who is able for this life that I will live today? The decisions I'll face, what I'll see that I don't even expect, what I'll be tempted by that I don't even know, Lord, I can't live today apart from your power. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. But being a good American, brought up under self-reliance and independence, you think you're going to call on God when it's needed. But the rest of the time, he, you're going to handle it. At least that's what I think. Every Christian needs outside help. Summary of Romans 7. The justified have been set free from the land and power of the law. They have a new relationship to the law. But what about God's law? It's still good. The problem isn't the law, it's man. Your resolve and mine to obey the word has never solved our problems, given us freedom, or produce the growth we so passionately desire. In fact, it's only worked against us. How? Let's go back and use anger. Okay? So I resolve in the morning. I'm driving out, I'm getting out, pulling out of my driveway. Lord, I resolve today I will not get angry. I especially won't get angry while I'm driving. Great. Driving down the road, I've hit I-30. What happens? Someone makes me angry. What do I do? Likely, I respond. <laughs> How do I respond? In anger. My resolve to not get angry has not changed a thing. Right? Anybody else connect to this? Then what happens? How do I feel about myself? Right? What did I pray in the morning? Lord, I resolve to not be angry. Oh, I just got angry. What do I do? I can get pretty discouraged pretty fast, can't I? I start beating myself up. Oh, my gosh. I can't even go for one hour 
kind of a lousy Christian, am I? This is, of course, me talking. You've never had these thoughts in your mind. Right? You start beating yourself up. If I were a better Christian, I bet Bill doesn't struggle like this. Don't ever think that. (laughs) What have I forgotten? Romans 5. Is God beating me up? Nope. Who's beating me up? Me. I've no reckon, yield. I've forgotten who I am in Christ. He's not beating me up. What's he doing? Hey, Bill, let's sit down on the couch again. <laughs> let's, let's have a chat about your anger. I saw you get angry again. <sighs> You're right. I got angry again. Okay, okay. Uh, want me to help you? No, nope, I got it tomorrow. I'll get it tomorrow. I'm good. I'll let you know if I need your help. <laughs> How's that working? <laughs> Not real well. <laughs> But that's the point. There is Romans 7. You keep slugging away at do's and don'ts. It doesn't work. And the result is you beat yourself up. And you go, I give. I give up. I guess there is no forward progress to be made in the Christian life. I don't know how to grow. I don't know how to pursue holiness. I try do's and don'ts and they don't work. Yay! (laughs) Congratulations! You're ready to move on to the next level so to speak. Do's and don'ts don't work. The truth is self-effort can't produce holiness. Underline it. Self-effort can't produce holiness. The only thing it can produce is a counterfeit holiness that's not real. Self-effort cannot produce holiness. Trying to keep rules, regulations, and or good resolutions has never saved anyone or curbed sin or produced true holiness. In fact, trying harder to follow the rules or keep resolutions will never work permanently. There are some folks in the wonderful state of Utah who perhaps don't understand this concept. And they have the highest suicide rate of almost any people group in the United States. Why? Because the peer pressure to be perfect by self-effort is so high. Guess what they've discovered? Doesn't work. What's the only way out they can think of? They take their lives. It doesn't work. It's never worked. But what, why do we think it works? Because I came over from Adam. And what do I bring with me? Ways that Adam thought. I wish it would all go away all at once. It doesn't. That's why Paul says... Be renewed or be transformed by the renewing of your 
mind. And that's why he says, know these things. Reckon them to be true. And now yield yourself in faith accordingly. But you got to keep going back and saying, wait a minute, my daddy loves me. He's not angry with me. He's not, he's not pulling me into the woodshed. He's taking me into the family room. I got to come clean. I got to be honest with him, but I can because of the security of our relationship. And he says, Bill, you got angry again. You're right. You're right, Daddy. I did. I did. And I'm beating myself up for it. I know. I know, Bill. Stop. I'm not beating you up. I want to help you. But what do I do? I'll get it tomorrow, Daddy. And you know what he does? Okay, let's chat again tomorrow afternoon. Let's see how that's going. <laughs> Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He's, he's waiting because what do you, what, when you were training your children in the way they should go, what did you have to wait for many times? A teachable moment. Any of you ever had a teachable moment with God? <laughs> And you say, what has changed in my life? I say, look back on your teachable moments. God has taught you things. But he might not have taught you the way you wanted. It might not have been in a classroom. But he might have brought you to a place where you go, oh. So besides anger, I only have one or two other besetting sins. Just one or two. <laughs> Hundred, thousand, probably. So I was, many, many years ago, I was teaching, and uh, I had asked a coworker to come listen to me and give me some critique. And so he came, I taught the lesson, and afterward he came up and he said, oh, oh, that was really good. Thank, thanks for that. I'd never thought about a few of those things. Good points. Good job. I said, ah, you know, thank you. But it wasn't really that good, you know. Wasn't really that good. And he said, no, no, really, it was good. It was good. I said, well, I'm going to teach again next week. You know, would you mind coming back? And I really would love some feedback. So he said, sure, I'll come again. Come again. So he came next week. I taught. He came up afterward. He goes, man, that was good. You know, crazy. That was good two weeks in a row. And I said, you know, thank you, but it wasn't really that good. And he stopped, and he got straight up to me, and he said, I'm not going there with you this week. I said, where are we going? <laughs> and he said, last week after I left, I thought that was very clever, the way you actually got two compliments out of me instead of just the original one I gave you. That's pride. And I said, what? And he said, well, I told you, good job. You said, thank you, but it wasn't very good, and so I complimented you again. He said, very clever. I went, uh, what? what? <laughs> and he said, so I'm not going there again with you this week. I've given you a compliment. If you choose to receive it, fine. If you don't, fine. But I'm not giving you another compliment. And he turned around and walked away. That was 25 years ago. Teachable moment. Now when somebody says whatever they say, I say thank you. 
and then I stop. Teachable moment. I wasn't looking to be taught a lesson, but God taught me a lesson in pride. See what I mean? Teachable moment. You all have been taught things, and they've come at you sideways, not necessarily because you said, I'm going to work on anger. They've just come at you, so be teachable. God may want to teach you something, and he'll use someone or some situation that you aren't quite expecting. He has this way, because he knows everything, of kind of keeping you off guard and off balance a little bit. (laughs) He's a great father. He knows how to teach, and he knows how to teach you, and he knows how to teach me. And he knows that we're taught differently. Trying harder to follow rules or keep resolutions will never work permanently. Of ourselves, we're unable to make progress. Only the Holy Spirit can bring change because he's the only one, chapter 8, with resurrection power. What has he already done to demonstrate his power? He's already raised you from the dead with Christ. And that life, Paul says in chapter 8, is what will do it. Guess what? While you have it, it's not yours to command. You need outside help, and so do I. As a result, in the promised land, I've been freed from the self-effort of do's and don'ts. The old bill dropped down to power. It's the same as it was before. Result. What was the result of sin exercising its power over me? I sinned. What wages did I get? Spiritual death and separation from God. On the other side of the wall... I'm no longer under the authority and power of sin, but under grace and the Spirit. Result? I'm drawn to obedience. But because I've brought the mindset of Adam with me, how do I propose to pursue holiness? I'm drawn to obedience. What do I want to do? Do's and don'ts. Do's and don'ts. Because do's and don'ts over here was how God and I kept score. Right? you're you're dead and now you're alive. But guess what hasn't left you? I still got to do do's and don'ts. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's totally different. Totally different. Here you had wages. Over here I give you gifts. This is totally different, Bill. Have you earned a gift, true gift? Have you earned a true gift in your life? No, it's, that's... (laughs) What's the definition of a gift? (laughs) Right? It's not a wage. It's a gift. He's given me things I didn't, couldn't have bought, couldn't earn, can't justify, can't nothing. He gives them to me. Why? Because he loves me. Why? Uh, That I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But it says he does. And it says he's loved me before the foundations of the world. imagine this? Daddy, it's great to see you finally. Bill, (laughs) before I created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, I was thinking of you. And I loved you. And I waited until the time was right. 
And I made you aware of my son and aware of your sin, and I drew you to myself. You've been on my mind and my heart a long time. Is that amazing? You've been freed from self-effort and the condemnation you put on yourself when you don't, can't, measure up to that. Keeping the law can only work on us from the outside in, never from the inside out. That's why it's counterfeit. No permanent heart change can ever occur by just modifying our behavior. Can we make things better for a while? Sure. But that's not the same thing. Can you tell, so let me ask you this question, talking about heart. If you walk up to somebody, um, I'm sure this has happened to you, um, I don't know, you'll have to name the place, could be work, could be a store or something, and somebody, it's maybe, uh, so let's think of maybe a store. It's somebody's job to be friendly to you, right? Hey, Bill, how can I help you today? I'm so glad you're here. Do you know when that, you're like, whoa, I see what you're saying, but your heart is, you don't care about me. I'm just a project to you. Ever felt that before? Versus a person who you know really cares about you, you right? You can sense that because there's a heart difference. That's what I'm talking about. You can fake it, but you won't make it. You can't fake it until you make it. It's fake. And you know it's fake. And you can keep trying to hold it up so everyone can see, gosh, Bill's a good Christian. Or you can do it from the heart. And you say, goodness gracious sakes alive, I struggle with anger. Why would I risk telling you that? I'm securing my relationship with my daddy. I can tell you those things. No permanent heart change can ever occur by just modifying our behavior. Romans 7, striving to keep a list of do's and don'ts is what doesn't work. Before Paul gets to what does work, chapter 8, he says here's what doesn't work because he knows we've brought this mindset with us from Adam. So first he is he he chops down that tree or he cuts out that pier under our bridge because he says, this isn't going to work. Don't lean on this. Don't depend on this. This isn't going to work. I know where you're going to run. I know where you're going to go. Stop. Doesn't work. Do you not remember? Back to our picture, which is so, gosh, God is just so smart. Who brought us into the promised land? Jesus, what is his Old Testament namesake? Who did not bring those people into the promised land? What is Moses, do's and don'ts, the law? What didn't bring you into the promised land, second generation of Israel? Moses, 
and do's and don'ts did not bring you into the promised land. Who did? Yeshua. Who brought you into the promised land that we've been talking about? Chapter 7. It ain't Moses. It's Yeshua. And he has new corn for you to eat on that side, which is chapter 8. You begin to see this, how this analog goes from this Old Testament picture. Paul puts some theology and says, well, let me blow your minds. Consider them blown for me. It wasn't Moses but Jesus who led you into the promised land. You know that. As sure as you're sitting there, you go, well, well I know that. But we forget it like, oh, every day. And we default back to Moses. You've been freed from self-effort. Just as the Jew who tries and tries to obey the law remains frustrated and bound up under the law, so Christians who seek to follow that same method will experience frustration and bondage. Why? Because the principle of obeying law has never solved man's problems or given believers growth. God has freed us to pursue a faith relationship with Jesus, not a list of do's and don'ts. That needs to sink in. What has God freed me to do? Enjoy my new marriage relationship with the Lord Jesus. To enjoy him, to enjoy his company, to get to know who he is. What does his heart beat fast for? He loved me. Is he sitting there going, Bill, Ephesians 2.10, I created good works in advance for you to do. You haven't done enough of them yet. You're laughing. <laughs> but don't we sometimes think that? What was Mary commended for versus Martha? she sat at the Lord's feet and just listened to him. I'd be going, Mary, get up. <laughs> I need some help because I'm a Martha. And you know what? So are you. And you'd be going to Mary, you know what? <laughs> There's time for that later, but right now, the meat is burning and the corn needs to be turned and what the heck are you doing sitting in here? At least make the iced tea. <laughs> right? I know you, and you know me. But who was commended? Mary. And she wasn't doing anything. She was just being with Jesus. God has freed you from your Martha-ness to be a Mary. Guess what we struggle to do? Be Mary. We're so do. We're human doings instead of human beings. God has freed us to pursue a faith relationship with Jesus, not a list of do's and don'ts. Two things that inhibit growth. First, are you trying to keep a list of do's and don'ts? Believing if you do that God will in some way owe you or look more favorably upon you. If you do, then you have fallen back into the bookkeeping mindset. 
Are you trying to keep a list of do's and don'ts, believing if you do that God will protect you and the other shoe will never drop? Welcome again to the bookkeeping mindset. Here's a good one. By the way, there is a best way to load the dishwasher. Do you look down on others who don't keep your list of do's and don'ts? Oh, some of you are looking down right now. You're looking at your papers. Oh, I don't want the teacher to call on me. If you're trying to keep a list of do's and don'ts, believing that somehow this will incur God's favor toward you, you've adopted your thinking like Adam. You're not thinking in the family of Christ. You're walking closer to the wall. If you're keeping a list of do's and don'ts, believing that God will protect you and the other shoe will never drop, you're thinking like Adam and you're walking toward the wall again. You're not walking away from the wall. When we, like Jonah, do you look down on others who don't keep your list of do's and don'ts? I know you don't know anyone like this, but if you did, how does that feel when they look at you? Oh, oh, you, you know, fill in the blank. Oh, you, hmm. Oh, what do you feel from them? You just went from here to here, right? I just felt judgment. Well, what just happened there? <laughs> so what if I, whatever, I'm free in Christ. The cross is a plus sign. What? I'm free in Christ. Why are you trying to put me back under law? Well, Bill, this is how Christians live. Oh, really? <laughs> Read Romans 7. Don't think so. <laughs> Do you look down on others? Does your walk bring you joy and freedom or stress, disappointment, and discouragement because you've never done enough or aren't good enough? What is that? Romans 5. Do you have too high an opinion of yourself? One extreme. Or do you see yourself as one desperately and daily in need of a deliverer? Have you fully settled in your mind that self-effort is a dead-end road to spiritual growth? What to reflect on so far? Romans 5, 6, 7. The, it's not even the icing. It's the big chapter. We're building up to it. Chapter 8, what to reflect on so far, 5, 6, and 7. Romans 5, our standing and our identity. We've been justified by God's legal declaration. We have peace and safety with him, grace now and glory later. Romans 6, he's brought us into a new relationship. He's united us to Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. While you're not all you will be, you're no longer who you once were. You have been fundamentally changed and placed into a new family with a new master. Continuing in sin is inadmissible in our lives. It is not okay, thank God I'm forgiven. 
We are to do something about it. What do I do? Chapter 7, crumb. (laughs) My inability. Do's and don'ts won't bring about spiritual growth because they rely on our self-effort. I'm not unwilling, but I'm unable, and I desperately need outside help all the day long. Paul has now set you up for the great news of chapter 8. Don't miss next week. Read Romans 8 a couple of times. You will be blessed that you did. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the teaching of your word. You created us to be uh, uh, created and redeemed us to, to be different to see you and to love you and to be drawn to you in obedience. And I confess, I just keep defaulting back to Adam and Moses and I forget our relationship and I forget that that's the most important thing. Uh, Would you continue to remind me of that truth? We want to grow. We're just like Paul in Romans 7. We love your word. We have a passion to desire and to grow. Uh, But Father, some of us are struggling with that. And I pray that as we even this week read Romans 8 and begin to let it saturate our thinking and our spirits, uh, would your spirit communicate to our spirit the truth of your word? And would this uh, coming week and next weekend be so transformational and pivotal in... um, my brothers and sisters' lives, and in my life again too, please. We pray for it, asking you, who you alone can do it, so we ask you to do what only you can do, please, and pray for it in Jesus' name.